Healthcare Unfiltered, a Shadi Nabhan podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I appreciate your loyalty. I appreciate you tuning in and listening to this new episode of Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm taping this monologue or this beginning as I sip tea prior to my two esteemed colleagues and guests joining me on the show. Doctors Jack West from the City of Hope and Nate Pinnell from the Cleveland Clinic. Both of them have been on my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology, when when we debated the Adora trial, which was presented at the ASCO 2020 meeting. I wanted to bring both of them again, first of all, because having them on the show is always a treat, but more importantly, to talk about broader topic as it pertains to FDA approvals, real world evidence, randomized control trials, and also use the ADORA trial a little bit as more of a platform to have this general discussion. I just think it's rather important to continue having the dialogue. In fact, I would tell you that uh, Jack West and Nate did have this point and counterpoint on Injama Oncology a couple of weeks ago, which was really very entertaining. And, you know, the debate on Adora trial has continued on social media. But if you think about it, there's probably more to the issue than simply one trial. What we are talking about is, should we actually have the drugs approved by the FDA and let clinicians make a judgment call and a decision as to whether they should use the drug or not? Or should we increase the regulation so the FDA should not really approve drugs unless they meet significantly higher standards than the current standard that we have? I just think it's an important topic. And I believe judging from all the dialogue on social media and so forth. I believe many listeners would appreciate the fact that we're having this dialogue. I would say Adora and beyond. So uh, before I have my guests introduce themselves, well, let me have a sip of tea first. Look, you're witnessing this is a live scenario, live situation. So I'm trying to give you a vivid look into what happens before I get my guests on the show. Look, let me plug the show first and ask you to find Healthcare Unfiltered on Apple's podcast, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, every podcast outlet. Wherever you consume podcasts, you will find Healthcare Unfiltered. Give the show the number of stars you believe the show deserves. Write a brief review, refer a friend or a colleague, subscribe to the show. Do what you can to promote the show for that. I am forever grateful. So I appreciate you tuning in. And without further ado, Jack West and Nate Pinnell on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. All right. Well, here they are, folks. We, they're going to introduce themselves. I'm sipping tea, like I told you, uh, before they came on the show. The two gurus, beyond introduction, but they will introduce themselves. Uh, literally, I am joined by two celebrities in the field of medicine, oncology, thoracic oncology, and social media. So, Jack, who the heck are you? Okay. 
Uh, I'm Jack West. I am an associate clinical professor in medical oncology focused in thoracic oncology at uh, the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center in the Los Angeles area. And Nate, I know you claim you're drinking tea. I think it's a scotch, but uh, who the heck are you? Uh, my name is Nate Pinnell. I am a thoracic medical oncologist who is currently at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Been here for about 13 years now. Okay. And I invite you both on the show to, I've actually titled this episode Beyond Adora. Because I, we'll talk a little bit about this, but I really feel that the Adora trial that we, you both have debated in print, I think both viewpoints were beautifully written in JAMA Oncology. I will link that to the, to the podcast, as well as on my previous podcast, Outspoken Oncology. Uh, it illustrates a, a larger issue, right, that is not necessarily specific to thoracic oncology or specific to the Adora trial. So I thought we will use that as a platform to talk about the larger uh, issue. So I think we'll, we'll start by maybe, I don't know, maybe a quick reminder to listeners who probably still don't know what the ADORA trial is, uh, at least just to, to try to highlight in 10 minutes or less between both of you where the differences are, and then we'll move on to a larger topic. Nate, you wanna just give us really quick synopsis what that trial was? Sure. So for anyone who um, has not been following along on the uh, various debates, the ADORA trial is a phase three randomized placebo-controlled trial, uh, specifically in stage 1B, stage 2, and stage 3A, non-small cell lung cancer that is positive for EGFR um, sensitizing mutations. Uh, patients undergo resection and then were randomly assigned they could then undergo adjuvant chemotherapy as appropriate by their oncologist, and then were randomized to either uh, up to three years of osimertinib, the third-generation EGFR inhibitor, or placebo, uh, with a primary endpoint of uh, improved disease-free survival. This was just presented uh, last summer at the ASCO annual meeting in 2020, where they showed a two-year follow-up uh, that had already had a, a very significant difference in disease-free survival, and they felt that this was significant enough that they would um, release the data, although the trial does continue and is still uh, blinded to the participants. We do not have any overall survival data at this point, just uh, disease-free survival. Jack, what's not to adore about the Adora? It's, ador it's an adorable trial. It is. I... I would say there's really no question that there was a profound, highly significant improvement in disease-free survival, uh, relapse-free survival. So that's certainly the case. Uh, and I think that the, the real issues center around whether that is the, the endpoint that we should be focused on or satisfied with in a setting where historically, what has really mattered has been overall survival. It's a curable lung cancer setting and we want more people to be alive. We want more people to be cured. And I think one of the challenges is this is a therapy that is so effective when given to people with metastatic disease or anticipated at relapse 
the the core question is just are we going to have uh, prospective or proactive treatment for everybody translate to more people living longer, ideally even being cured, or are we just suppressing the disease that will appear later uh, and over-treating the people who are uh, already cured by surgery who would not be at risk for it coming back and, and now are uh, going to be receiving three years of a therapy that is generally well tolerated, but has some toxicity issues and certainly has very significant costs associated with it. So I think those are the, the core issues. The fact that there is such an improvement in uh, disease-free survival is not surprising when you're looking at a time point during which people are getting this therapy that is so effective when you're on it. And it just doesn't answer the question of whether you're suppressing disease temporarily or truly changing the survival curve. And so I think that's really the debate. Uh, I think the reality is we have an FDA approval and and I, I think it's appropriate to present the trial and and uh, and present the the option to patients. I think uh, many patients, probably most, would favor pursuing it. Uh, but I would offer the caveats that uh, we don't know if that's going to translate to survival. And I think the bigger question is just you know whether having a positive trial without showing overall survival is you know, the, the ultimate goal here. Is that sufficient to drive practice? How realistic is it, would it be if we don't see a survival benefit to change practice after the fact? But obviously it is a very challenging question. It's why we've had debate for so long about this. Right. It's, this is really, you know, uh, I think a lot of the people who've been following Jack and I's debates on this topic would be surprised at how many of the points we actually agree upon on these um, the topics. You know, I unequivocally overall survival and improved cure rates is really what anyone cares about in an adjuvant trial. That's absolutely true. But we also have to keep in mind the time frame of these trials. They take years and years and years to accrue and then years and years to get survival endpoints, you know, at, at two years, I mean, essentially there was no difference in survival because everyone was still alive in both arms. And so um, it's gonna be years before we really are able to see a difference. And meanwhile, you know, people are getting lung cancer. And, and the, the question is, do you wait and design your trial, you know, to take eight years to get an overall survival endpoint, or do you release earlier endpoints and allow people to decide whether they think they're significant enough to change treatment? And there, you know, I think we may talk more about this on the podcast, but the, you know, the FDA uh, has taken a very uh, strong position on trying to allow so-called surrogate endpoints. So endpoints that are shorter in duration, that are not the gold standard, but that may be associated with the gold standard of survival so that we can get earlier data out and potentially treat people before we know definitively whether it truly improves survival or not, 
while we wait. And so I think that is the major issue here is, you know, could we wait? Could we wait until the overall survival is done before we approve the drug or start using it? We could, uh, but just, you know, keeping in mind that if it ends up improving survival, that there will be years of people who might've potentially benefited from the drug who would not access it until that point, as opposed to the risk of treating people now based on a very large disease-free survival endpoint with the risk that ultimately it might not improve overall survival. And then we have to have the, you know, the tough discussion about should we remove the approval and stop doing it if we've widely adopted that. So I think, you know, these are discussions that intelligent people can have. Uh, I personally, you know, tend to fall more on the err on the side of treat, over-treating some people in the chance of curing more, um, but prepared to be wrong years later. You're the experts here. Isn't adjuvant therapy by itself, we're over-treating some people? I mean, I mean, the reality is in stage three colorectal cancer, where we know there's a survival benefit in Folpox treatment, we know we are over-treating some people who might have cured the surgery. In breast cancer, we give adjuvant therapy for whatever, 5%, you know, survival benefit, even 10%. But we know some folks are being over-treated. I mean, isn't the definition of adjuvant therapy, we are over-treating some at the ex to save? Absolutely. I, I think this is like any issue of trading sensitivity and specificity. There's a, there's a trade-off here. The whole bargain that we make with adjuvant therapy is that you are over-treating some to have that translate to a benefit for, for, uh, for some subset. I mean, particularly looking at chemotherapy for resected non-small cell lung cancer, it actually seems to translate to a cure or you know, markedly improved survival at least for about 5%, 8%, at most 10% of the population who you treat. And the others either were cured and can't get more cured or you treat and they still have a relapse. And, and that happens in other settings as well when we treat. I would say that the, the issues, the distinction, the challenge is that one, we're talking with chemotherapy about four cycles, three months of treatment, and then moving on and not being on years and years and years of, of therapy with those costs and some toxicity issue, uh, but you can move on from it after three months. And I also would highlight that when the adjuvant chemotherapy trials were done, they did show improvements in disease-free survival initially, and we spent about 10 seconds uh, thinking about that and then dismissing it. Now, the improvement is clearly very different with that, but it's just that we have always focused on overall survival as the main arbiter. I, I would be, I, I think everything that Nate mentions is very reasonable. A smart person could look at these results and say, given what we don't know, I think it's very reasonable to, to treat patients this way. But, but the fact is, it, it is extremely probable that patients who are in the midst of osimertinib for 
non-existent or subclinical disease are going to continue to have favorable scans for the at least the first couple of years, if not the duration of time they're on it. And that is not, in my mind, clarifying whether it is translating to actually curing patients and better overall survival. But, but it is a question of, do you wanna err on the side of over-treating a lot of patients or some patients for years with this based on the benefit of the doubt? A reasonable idea. Is there a surrogate, Nate, that at least in lung cancer, I wanna move from the trial to the larger topic, but is there a surrogate in lung cancer where if you are disease-free by year three or year four, then you are, you're gonna have overall survival benefit. I know in the colorectal cancer literature, even in the lymphoma literature, my area of expertise, if, you're, if you have DLBCL and you're disease-free within 24 months, your chance of recurrence are so low, less than 10% or so. I mean, is there anything like this? in lung cancer? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know if anyone's ever done that particular analysis of like a landmark. So using something like two or three year disease-free survival. As there's your next, there's your next project. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it would be an easy thing to do. Um, I think that most of the time, because, you know, overall survival is more of a continuous variable. By that point, you probably would already have seen some separation of curves um, but it's a, you know, it's a good point. Um, now, it, it is a little bit interesting that you bring that up, though, because in the EGFR space, we're going to see a very strange shape to the disease-free survival curve if it's anything like either radiant or select. And what you're going to see is a completely flat curve for the first three years during adjuvant treatment, and then you're going to see a steepened slope as there's recurrences afterwards. And so in this case, where one there's gonna be not a smooth slope of the disease-free survival curve in the treated group. And also where, you know, from an overall survival perspective, people who recur in both arms who get treated could expect a several year median survival just from, you know, treatment for metastatic disease. Uh, it's gonna be hard to use short landmark differences. Mm -hmm. However, people who recur with metastatic disease in lung cancer, unfortunately die at a relatively high rate. And I think that we kid ourselves a little bit if we say we're gonna rescue everyone who recurs. I think that uh, my, my personal feeling with having no pre-conceived uh, you know, knowledge of the data here is that we're actually going to start seeing significant separations of the survival curve because of a prevention of recurrence, CNN's recurrences and other recurrences uh, between these two arms. Um, you know, it may not end up being huge, but, uh, you know, it, I think we'll see it within a, within a few years. And I think ultimately uh, it'll be, you know, more significant, but, you know, it's just a guess. And I would agree that uh, historically, uh, when you're talking about years ago, when the adjuvant chemotherapy trials were done, if you relapsed after resection, we would anticipate that you would have a pretty steady decline and, and die after that. There was a not much of a dissociation between the disease-free survival and overall survival curves. I think that the, the issue or the enviable problem is that those curves get bent a lot more for osimertinib in the setting of a relapse of EGFR mutation positive disease. Now, yeah, some will 
relapse with multiple brain metastases. And I think that would translate to a big difference. But for the patients who relapse with a lung nodule or two and uh, start on therapy, they could, they're going to live a lot longer, fortunately, than the patients who relapsed who didn't have a driver mutation in the trials of your with chemotherapy. So I think that a lot of our truisms of how things go in lung cancer don't apply to the patients with a driver mutation for whom we have a fabulously effective or several effective targeted therapies, potentially even immunotherapy uh, you know, in the future as well for a different population. So the rules are different, fortunately, because our systemic therapies are so much more effective, which isn't to say that we're going to be curing these patients left and right, but we certainly can bend the trajectory of their survival from the time of relapse. So, but Jack, Jack what, what's wrong? What's wrong with the FDA lowering regulations? making treatments available, reasonably available, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're not really going to do blanket statement. I mean, they just rejected, as you know, pembrolizumab as adjuvant therapy for, for triple negative breast cancer, right? This has just happened as we're taping. But what's wrong with the FDA lowering their regulations, making drugs more available, and leaving it up to somebody like yourself and Nate to make that decision on an individual basis, patient by patient basis? So in other words, the drug showed some benefit, uh, we can debate the end point. Let's make it available. Let's let the oncologist make that decision jointly with the patient. Let's not be a barrier to making the drugs available in the marketplace. Well, I think, I think it is really a question of, particularly as these therapies are used for more longitudinal duration of years, at costs of $15,000, $20,000 a month or more. Uh, the question is, what do we expect to get for that when, you're, when it's costing a quarter of a million dollars a year? Now, I, I think one of the challenges is when we say, well, you know, if we ask the patient or if we ask the doc, neither of those people is actually paying for the, the drug. Uh, we aren't asking the people who are incredulous and crying at the, the, their kitchen table because they can't afford the rising premiums for their health insurance because we are ever lowering our threshold for what qualifies to cover and what, what we get for the money. And so I think that you know, the challenge is, I think it's one thing, if we demonstrate that we're actually helping patients live longer, then I think you, you adapt and you say that is money well spent and should be prioritized. The challenge comes when we are talking about ever longer durations of what becomes really speculative about this might help patients, but, but neither the, the physician nor the patient uh, have a, a financial you know, stake. They are not bearing the cost of this. It gets passed on to other people uh, who, who don't get a vote on it. And I, I would just say, is this really the best use of, of resources? And I know that, you know, Nate 
Nate and I can't change all that, but we can at least debate these issues. And, and I think if these were less expensive medications, it would be somewhat less of an issue. We'd still have the questions of potential toxicities in patients who may be cured over time. Uh, but yeah, cost is an issue. And I think it, it should be something that we need to ask, what, what is society getting for the money and recognize that there's a difference between something that could possibly maybe translate to a survival benefit down the road and something where we actually demonstrate that. I think that our, our threshold should be somewhat higher when the costs that get passed on to everyone else in society uh, are quite significant. There was a time in all of our professional lives when the cost of some of these targeted therapies exceeding $10,000 a month seemed like uh, you know, an, an unthinkable milestone. And now that cost is quaint and extraordinarily low compared to what we're talking about. And the durations that we're also talking about are going from years to potentially indefinite. Nate, so, lower the FDA regulation, go ahead, respond. No, I actually, I think your point uh, of what, what you said about, you know, approving drugs and, and letting people decide is actually pretty much the party line. So I think this is a, a relatively unique uh, in the developed world to so the FDA. And I think this is something that everyone who listens totally misunder. I mean, some people know this, but a lot of people I think misunderstand this. So I had the uh, ability to go uh, and spend a couple days at the FDA when I was working with ASCO, uh, met Rick Pazder in the uh, oncology um, group and some of his people. And something that is really struck me about what the FDA does, their job is not to help at least, the, okay, let me back that up for a second. Their position on their job, the way they address approvals for drugs is that it is not their job to tell oncologists or anyone in the medical field whether or not to use a drug or not. It is simply to prove if that drug is effective and it's safe. And that's it. That is the FDA mandate. They don't take into account cost. They don't take into account whether there's eight other drugs on the market in the same indication. Their job is to prove that, uh, to, to evaluate the data and show that a drug that has been tested in a trial is effective. And that definition is very um, debatable uh, in terms of the design of the trials. And also, is it safe? And it's not going to melt people into a puddle of goo, essentially. And, and that's it. And then they put it out there and they leave it up to us, the doctors and the patients uh, and the direct-to-marketing TV ads and everything to try to decide whether or not to use it or not. And so um, I think that this is a very American thing to say it is not up to the government to tell us what to treat or not, even though we do expect them to show that it's not going to be, you know, that it's going to be what it says it's going to be. It's going to be safe, safely produced and not contaminated, and that ultimately it's going to have to show some level of efficacy, although it does not have to be compared against the current best standard of care. It has to be compared against a standard of care that is existing at the time that the trial is designed, which these days is often sort of uh, left behind the current standard of care. So that's how we end up with all these sort of me too drugs. 
I do like the fact that we just accused Jack of being unpatriotic, right? I mean, he's like, un- <laughs> Jack, you're being un-American, buddy. I mean, you're just saying, this is what the FDA does. Well, what, what, do you, what, what say you? Well, I, I, I agree that that is the low bar of the FDA. I think that, you know, I think it's a problem. I think it's a challenge that FDA uh, it points to the number of approvals, as many of us do, as a gold standard metric of, of unequivocal prog- uh, progress. I think that the number of approvals is not necessarily something to beat our chests about. It should be the quality, uh, the incremental benefit of them. And I believe that Nate and I agree on the dubious benefit of, you know, a fourth ALK inhibitor to beat crizotinib, which is essentially clinically irrelevant in the US in 2021, or, you know, one more chemoimmunotherapy combination to beat uh, chemotherapy alone as if we were still doing that in the last two or three years. And the fact is that there's a, a real role for gamesmanship and and the FDA is libertarian about all of it. It's, it's I, I understand that they don't want to have to worry about the tough questions. So they absolve themselves of those and just raise their hands and say, it's not up to us. We can't care if the drug is going to, uh, you know, decimate the country economically or adds no actual material benefit. Sometimes it does, but that's not their, their charge. And, you know, we look at the US healthcare system and today I think we look at it as a, a temple of waste and, and financial and overall inefficiency. I mean, it, is, it has glaring problems. I know of no other country that looks at and wants to replicate the US healthcare system in its cost effectiveness. But yeah, Jeff, I think the, one, one question, um, no, one question to both of you. I mean, I mean, we don't, oncologists in general, we don't like to be told what to do and not what to do. I mean, we get pretty ticked off when somebody questions Nate for ordering a PET scan and he needs pre-authorization. And if Jack, you want to get an MRI of the brain, you get a peer to peer to, to get that, right? I mean, it's, it's one of this, right? I mean, so I get the idea. We don't want the FDA to tell us what to use, what not to use, make it available and let's decide. How is that different than when uh, an insurance company says you can't order a test and, and we don't want to be told what to do, do we? So I think there's a few parts of that. Um, so first of all, the, the America is a little bit unique also in that it separates out its approval in terms of being available to use and its approval in terms of insurance will pay for it. Um, so Europe, for example, can approve something and say, yes, we accept that this is an acceptable standard and you can use it, but we also don't agree to pay for it because we don't think that it's cost effective or it's better than current choices. Because we don't have any kind of central review like that, uh, we're basically left up to whatever we personally decide. And oncologists, just like every human being, are greatly 
open to influence uh, from marketing, from our patients' choices because they saw a commercial on TV, from the very friendly marketing rep who came and, um, and saw us this week. You know, and I see this. And so the, the second part of your question, though, is people don't like to be told what to do. And I don't completely agree with that. So you're right. Um, people in general don't want us to say, no, you can't do this thing that you just said that you want to do. You can't not give this treatment that you want. But as someone who as part of a large health system actually has the power to help design so-called care pathways where we help uh, guide people on evidence-based choices, we were actually told very explicitly by our oncologists that they didn't want a list of options. They wanted to know what we did. They wanted to know what we treated patients with, and that is what they wanted to go. And so as these new drugs are approved uh, and new me too choices that come out that really add nothing new beyond what we already have without necessarily naming names, when the oncologists say, I want to start giving this because the rep just came and told me about it and I saw it at ASCO and it's exciting, I can say, well, you know what? Hang on. We had a meeting. We discussed this. Here's the data. It shows that actually, in fact, this is not an advance over what we're already using. And so we're recommending you stick with what we're already using. And you know what? They're okay with that. It's not the government telling them what to do. It's their colleagues telling them what to do. And so there is, I think, a role for experts to curate the data and actually make recommendations and guide use as long as you know, you're not restricting from getting a necessary treatment, you're picking the best among choices. So help, help, me, help me resolve this issue. I'll start with you, Jack. And again, I, I'm, I'm just trying to understand for me and my listeners, um, you're the experts here. But, but if we take, if, well, two things. Number one, I think we can all agree that we cannot answer every question with a randomized control trial, right? And we just can't. There's not enough resources in the world to, to, to do that. But at the same time, if I'm going to stick to only studies that have been shown to the FDA and the FDA said, yes, you can go ahead and use it and I'm going to use it, I need to really be you know, to be kosher, I have to really stick exactly to the inclusion exclusion criteria that led to the approval of that drug in that study. So if the, if they allowed a patient with a GFR has to be over 60, and I'm seeing a patient in clinic with GFR of 55, I am, you know, taking a leap of faith based on my clinical judgment to use that drug, because essentially, I don't have data of safety or efficacy in GFR below 60, right? If the inclusion criteria was GFR over 60, so anything below 60, I'm using my clinical judgment, which is fine, right? We've all, we have to do that. Why can't we apply the same thing using clinical judgment in something like this? We know a drug is available. Jack can make a decision. Do I give this patient OC or not? Using his clinical judgment, he may think, you know, this is lousy. I'm not going to use it, but I'm sure he'll have one patient where he thinks it's it's a good idea. I mean, we use clinical judgment all the time because none of the clinical trials that lead to drug approval apply to real world. Jack? I agree that, of course, real world patients largely don't conform to clinical trials. And I think there are many settings, including say stage three, unresectable non-small cell where a lot of the patients in the real world 
just don't apply well to the criteria that are applied in, in rigorous clinical trials. And so, yeah, there's a disparity. And yes, I think we all agree that we need to make judgments. But, you know, I think it's a reductio ad absurdum argument that, that, that because somebody's creatinine is marginally elevated, that we can't use the judgment that we can't extrapolate that the a certain trial would be an appropriate choice for that patient versus somebody with a performance status of three or who uh, you know who who doesn't have a, a driver mutation and we just want to try it. I think there is there needs to be uh, some means testing of you know how, compelling is the rationale for it based on what we do know. Uh, and, and I think, you know, if I, I don't think that there's very many people who are criticizing uh, treating somebody who is, who wouldn't qualify for a trial just because of one thing that's outside of the parameters of the exclusion and inclusion criteria versus somebody who can't get out of bed at this point. And no, so, I but, but I think that we should, you know, that that's different from, uh, you know, a, a, a really profound uh, deviation that's just essentially on a whim. And I think if we can't convey to whoever asks us for the evidence for why we would favor something, if it's a good phase two trial instead of a phase three trial, if you can't give an explanation for why, then it's reasonable to say maybe it shouldn't be covered. I guess I'm just trying to put clinical judgment as a concept. You know, I, I used an example of the inclusion exclusion criteria. We exercise clinical judgment. Nate, I, I'm just using clinical judgment as a metaphor, whatever you want to call it, that make the drug available, use the clinical judgment. Maybe that's oversimplification. What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, I mean, again, I think that actually technically is the way the American system works. I mean, once the FDA approves a drug, I mean, if the patient was willing to pay for it, you can use anything for anything. I mean, you it's this is what's called off-label use. You can use an FDA-approved drug for lung cancer if you want to use it to treat breast cancer. You can actually now. The insurance probably will refuse to pay for it for that setting because they that unfortunately. Uh, what we've done is by not having any sort of overarching agreed upon restriction of how we use drugs, uh, what we've done is we've essentially deferred that to insurance companies. And now they get to decide what is and is not appropriate from a clinical judgment standpoint. They more or less have to cover something that's FDA approved within their indication. Uh, but if you want to um, use something out of that, then often they will restrict it because it's not you know, meeting whatever their their uh, FDA indication is. But no, I, I completely agree with you. you. You have to. You have to be able to extrapolate outside the FDA label. You have to be able to extrapolate outside of trials because otherwise you'd never treat anyone. I mean, almost none of the patients that I treat with chemo radiation and durvalumab, say for stage three, would have met the eligibility criteria for the Pacific trial. And yet, we use it a lot. And so, and, and, and the truth is, you know, uh, they, sometimes they struggle more than what you would expect in this, in the studies, because it's a different population. So that, that is a different and unique problem. And I think that is an area where things like real world data can really be helpful to help, you know, post-marketing 
uh, data to help. You know, we need to not just approve something and say, here, use it. And, you know, we'll never talk about it again. We have to keep continue developing our knowledge base about the uses of these drugs outside of the approved settings and the trial populations. Um, but you should certainly be free to use it if you think it's a reasonable thing. Jack, in talking to patients in general, beyond thoracic oncology or the Adora, but ju just generally, like, you know, what do you see? Do patients want lower or higher FDA regulations? Like, just where on the patient advocacy hat? Where do you see patients stand on that debate? Uh, well, I, I don't... I don't see a lot of patients entering into this debate, but I think obviously if, if mo most of the more engaged patients would rather have a very liberal FDA, I don't think that's a surprise. I think, I think the question is not what would people who have a clear vested interest do or say. I mean, if you ask what would pharma companies want, they also want a, a very liberal FDA. The question is, what's the right thing? And, you know, that to me is a different question than what does the FDA allow? Because to me, I think, well, the FDA says we can use, uh, you know, a pathologic CR rate or something is, you know, that is because I'm your father, that's why. That's not an answer to a question. That's just, it needs to be an answer that actually makes sense in the broader context of what is the best thing to do, not what does somebody who has a clear vested interest and a lot of bias in the situation say about it. Um, and, and we're all biased. I mean, every physician, every patient, every, every stakeholder has a bias. We just need to acknowledge that. And, and I, I would just step back and ask, I don't want to pillory the, the FDA. I mean, the FDA is doing what it can in a very difficult situation. But I think that there's nothing about the US healthcare system and especially the regulatory process for drugs and costs that should make us feel like we should be the pride of the world in how we're doing it. So I, go ahead. I was going to point out one thing that is very also uh, a very American thing here is, you know, America usually does not want to grant monopolies to businesses. They generally want to allow competition. And so I think that part of the spirit of the FDA allowing essentially any, you know, even the 10th entry into a market uh, once they've proven that they've crossed a relative boundary of safety and efficacy in is that, you know, in general, this increases competition and lowers prices. The problem with that is that in the medical market, uh, it doesn't work. And actually competition does not lower prices for drugs in the pharmaceutical uh, company. But I think that this may in fact be at least conceptually and, and um, you know, uh, the general idea behind the FDA's approval may tend to fall under that same idea. It just tends not to work that way. Yeah. And I want to be cognizant. I know Jack has, uh, has a hard stop in a few minutes, but um, I got a little bit intrigued. I have, I have to say this. I was intrigued a few days ago. I, I saw like posts going flying uh, right and left about uh, bullying on social media because of questioning some of these trials and, <laughs> 
and uh, I, I didn't really fo follow through what, what actually happened. But I, I do think that um, there's a lot of passion about some of these. And I, I, I think that sometimes um, being passionate about these debates make people a little bit um, uncomfortable with questioning the results or the outcomes. I, I think healthy debate should always be welcome. Yes, that's true. But I think part of it is um, we have to be careful in our words. And I think, you know, one challenge of the social media world is when, when what you say is retained and, uh, and you, and in this case, you know, if I uh, was inappropriately harsh, uh, more than uh, you'd want to be, you know, that is something that that you'd really want to, to be very mindful of. And, and I think we do, we want to have, a, a, we want to have an environment where, you know, Nate and I can debate these things and, and we're talking about ideas and it's not ad hominem attacks. You know, it's, it's, it's really about the issues and not about, uh, it's not personal. And if it gets, too emotional for any of us, I think it's a problem. And so, uh, and, and frankly, none of us is perfect. And, and uh, I, I would like to always be uh, very measured in my comments, but uh, I would say and do some things differently. I don't wanna be too heated or personal. And that said, I do think that we cannot take uh, challenges of the trial design or the interpretation as as personal attacks either. By the way, Nate, he didn't mean you and I. You and I are perfect. He just talked about the rest of the world. Just don't worry about that. Uh, in the last three minutes, I'm gonna challenge both of you to what would be the top three things you would do differently from an FDA perspective? I mean, the whole debate from the Adora led to the higher debate on the FDA, but pretty much it's about the FDA allowing the drug to be approved, blah, 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 and we know the issue. So if you were, if you want to make some changes over the next, you know, few years from an FDA perspective, what would those be, and then what would those be, Jack? Yeah, I would say that in a perfect world, I would love for there to be some consideration of cost or value of the therapy uh, factoring into the equation. I would like there to be a prioritization. There is a, a heightening of focus when, uh, you know, and, and acceleration for unmet need, but we don't have a deprioritization for a setting where there's really no need at all. And, you know, there's, we don't have a decelerated approval process for redundant approvals. And, uh, but I think that it would be ideal to just ensure that, that, that FDA's focus and attention gets allocated according to need. And that includes deprioritizing places where it doesn't. And I would, I would just want there to be a really careful focus on on the endpoints that matter, not just what we can get fast, uh, you know, with the with the kind of minimal viable product version of of a surrogate endpoint uh, that hasn't yet been been battle tested, uh, and especially if that does happen, to have there be 
uh, subsequent focus on this once we have greater time and experience with these agents. Nate? So uh, I'm not sure the problem is with the FDA per se. You know, the, pr the problem is, is that companies have to negotiate uh, a design of their trial and they have to use it based on the evidence that exists at the time that they do that. And I don't know that everyone understands quite how far before a trial is presented that the actual initial design takes place. And it's really hard to change things midstream. Um, I do think that there definitely could be more attention paid uh, to trials that are being done, say, ex-US using standards that don't exist outside the US when it's being considered uh, in for US approval. But I think the larger problem here is that things are just becoming astronomically expensive and this is just becoming utterly ridiculous. And the, the changes that have been in place to protect patients like, you know, free drug programs and whatnot are no longer actually, they're already starting to fail. And now that we're getting ridiculously effective treatments, we're gonna start seeing that they're only available to a select number of people because of the cost. And so I personally, and just to reveal sort of my, my political leaning here, think that we need to have a single payer system in the United States, which will allow us to negotiate price, uh, prices. Of, Nate, of that goes against the market concept you're just talking about. Yeah, market doesn't work. If you make it work, maybe that would be better, but it doesn't work the way it is right now. America and everything. Um, but, but ultimately, since that probably isn't going to happen in the short term, at the very least, I think some kind of, you know, EMA level board that's going to regulate things. So, you know, let them be proven to be effective by the FDA. That's fine. But then when you're going to cover them, say for government programs like Medicare, there should be the ability to negotiate prices, there should be a value judgment where you decide whether something truly is better than what is existing. And if it's not, there's no real reason to do that. And what that would do is that would actually introduce a market effect and people would start actually perhaps lowering their prices in order to make their drugs a little bit more appealing to those payers. And so I think there are very simple things that could be done to make it more of a market rather than what we have right now, which is essentially Medicare has to pay any price that's set by the company without negotiation. It's, it's really kind of ridiculous the more you actually learn about how we pay for drugs in America. All right, guys, look, this was, this was pleasant. This was wonderful. I, I hope our listeners uh, enjoyed this. I took a couple of photos. I'll make sure I send them to you so you could consent to, the, to posting these photos on social media. Take care, yeah. folks. Thank you so much. Take I know time. you have to run. Nate, thank you so much. Uh, and this will air in a couple of weeks. We'll uh, keep you posted. Cannot thank you enough, guys. Thank you. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. Okay, folks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Healthcare Unfiltered with my esteemed colleagues and guests, Drs. Jack West and Nate Pennell. This was enjoyable for me as a host to hear various views, to discuss not just the ADORA trial, but really the larger concept of FDA regulations. Should we approve drugs and make them available and let clinicians decide when to prescribe, what to prescribe? If you were a patient, what would you want to actually see happening? I think all of these are important questions. I believe we had some theories. I think I heard some answers. I think I heard some proposals from my colleagues. 
as to what they would propose or what they would suggest. Whether this will happen or not, only time will tell. But I want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for taking time of your busy schedule and listening to Healthcare Unfiltered. You can support the show. You can support Healthcare Unfiltered by subscribing to it, by rating it, by writing a review, and or by referring a friend or a colleague to the show. You can find Healthcare Unfiltered on all podcast outlets, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, anywhere you consume podcasts, you will find Healthcare Unfiltered. I also want to know how you think I'm doing. What opportunities do I have to improve on hosting the show? Well, you can direct message me on Twitter and let me know your opinions. My handle is at Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com or visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com and send me a note or communicate with me there. You can check other aspects of the website and check out prior episodes of my older podcast, Outspoken Oncology, and my newer podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered. I appreciate your support. I really value uh, your commitment to, to, to be part of the listening crew, if you will, to Healthcare Unfiltered. I want to leave you with a saying to Muhammad Ali, he who is not courageous enough to take risks will accomplish nothing in life. Until next time, take care.